0: Today I hope to finish chapter 8 of the Gospel of John. We've been on it for quite some time. It's basically a long conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders are men of, are men of unbelief. You see the irony there, right? Religious leaders, yet they're unsaved. They're men of unbelief who have blinded and deafened themselves to Jesus' life-giving words. Our passage begins in verse forty-five, but I'll start with verse forty-three by way of context. John 8 43, Jesus says this Why do you not understand what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father. Of lies. The devil is a destroyer and a deceiver, and these religious leaders are aligned with him, though they say they are aligned with God. They are the devil's spiritual descendants. That's why John the Baptist in Matthew three seven called them the brood, you brood of vipers. What is a brood? A brood is offspring. That's, the, that, that's what that Greek word means. You offspring of vipers. And the context there in Matthew 3, 7, it says the Pharisees and the Sadducees. It's the Sanhedrin. It's the religious leaders. They didn't have you know, a Senate and a House of Representatives and an executive branch. They had the Sanhedrin. That's their government. And their government is made up of their religious leaders. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, John the Baptist calls, you brood of vipers, you offspring of vipers. It's fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Jesus is fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And the religious leaders are fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. Now, you remember Genesis 3.15? Right after the Adam and Eve sinned. We've, we've seen it here. We've seen Genesis 3.15 here recently. And God gives... The prophecy that he will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the seed of the woman. And there will be enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. You see the seed of the serpent with the religious leaders. You brood of vipers, you offspring of vipers. They're the descendants of the spiritual descendants of the devil. The religious leaders who are talking about God. They speak, God this, God that, but they're the offspring, the spiritual offspring of the devil, the seed of the serpent. And they seek to kill, and they will kill, the seed of the woman. They will bruise the devil through his seed, through his spiritual offspring, through the religious leaders, will bruise him on the heel. They'll kill him, but he'll be resurrected three days later. And he will bruise him, the devil, on the head. This is what is being, this is what is unfolding here in the text. We're seeing prophecy fulfilled. Keep reading in verse 45. But because I speak the truth, Jesus says, you do not believe me. The spiritual war is about divine truth. The spiritual war is about divine truth. Those who are, who are of God accept God's truth, they accept divine truth and their actions reflect it. Those who are of the devil reject divine truth and their actions reflect it. Jesus doesn't say, although I speak the truth, you do not believe me. He says, because I speak the truth, you don't believe me. The Word of God is divisive. The Word of God is is that which splits. Remember Jesus' words in Matthew Matthew 10. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth, Jesus says. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. The spiritual war is all around us. As we saw at the 930 this morning, in the spiritual war, there are no Switzerland's. Remember Switzerland in World War II? Hey, we're neutral. We're not with anybody. We're neutral. There are no Switzerland's in the spiritual war. There is no middle ground. There was a time when our culture, when our nation understood that. There was a time when our culture understood this divine truth. But for at least the last 60 years, we've been rejecting this divine truth. The theologian A.W. Tozer observed this back in his day. He was born in the late 1800s and died in 1963. Listen to his pastoral words of warning from many, many decades ago. It's kind of an extended quote, so stick with me. He says this, "'Going no further back than the times of the founding and early development of our country,' we are able to see the wide gulf between our modern attitudes and those of our fathers, our forefathers. He didn't say our forebearers, he said our forefathers. Between between our modern attitudes and those of our fathers. In the early days, he means the early days of America, when Christianity exercised a dominant influence over American thinking, men conceived the world to be a battleground our fathers believed in sin and the devil and hell as constituting one force, and they believed in God and righteousness and heaven as the other. These were opposed to each other in the nature of them forever in deep, grave, irreconcilable hostility. Man, so our fathers held, had to choose sides. He could not be neutral. For him, it must be life or death. Heaven or hell, and if he chose to come out on God's side, he could expect open war with God's enemies. The fight would be real and deadly and would last as long as life continued here below. below. Men looked forward to heaven as a return from the wars, a laying down of the sword to enjoy in peace the home prepared for them. Sermons and songs in those days often had a martial quality about them, he says. Martial, that means warfare. Tozer says that sermons and songs in those days often had a martial quality about them or perhaps a trace of homesickness. The Christian soldier thought of home and rest and reunion. It still is a solid Bible doctrine that tremendous spiritual forces are present in the world and man, because of his spiritual nature, nature, is caught in the middle. The evil powers are bent upon destroying him while Christ is present to save him through the power of the gospel. To obtain deliverance, he must come out on God's side in faith and obedience, Tozer says. That, in brief, is what our fathers thought, and that, we believe, is what the Bible teaches. How different today. The fact remains the same, but the interpretation has changed completely. Men think of the world not as a battleground, but as a playground. We are not here to fight, we are here to frolic. We are not in a foreign land, we are at home. We are not getting ready to live, we are already living. And the best we can do is to rid ourselves of our inhibitions and our frustrations and live this life to the full. Close quote. We only have two choices. Two choices. We serve in God's army or we serve in the devil's army. Those are the only two options. We serve as an agent of God's coming kingdom or as an agent of the domain of darkness. We live in Christ's image, pursuing, hunting, seeking righteousness and truth, or we live like an animal, feeding our appetites, running from appetite to appetite, living a frantic search for happiness. The spiritual war rages on in us, around us, among us, there is no neutrality in this war. You're either with God or you are opposed to God. Keep reading in verse 46. Which one of you convicts me of sin? This is an incredibly audacious question from Jesus. It's an incredibly audacious claim. Not only does he claim to be sinless, but he challenges them to present evidence to the contrary. This is a challenge. I mean, if you or I made the challenge, it'd be comical. It'd be funny. And it'd be foolish, right? Because somebody's going to show up, here's exhibit A, Alex. That was absurd, that claim you just made. And here's exhibit B, and C, and D, and double A, and double B, and double For all of us. It'd be ridiculous if we made a claim like this. Please don't misunderstand. I'm not condoning sin at all. I'm simply recognizing the fallen, broken nature, the pathetic reality of who we are. We're sinners by nature, and I am praising the monogenes, to use the Greek phrase that we saw early on. I am praising the one and only, the only begotten Son of God, the Lamb of God without spot and without blemish, who is perfectly sinless, and therefore, was qualified as our substitute. I am praising the one whom Thomas will refer to before this book is over as my Lord and my God, Jesus. Jesus. Keep reading in verse 46. If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? This is a first-class condition in the Greek. In Greek, you can take an if clause and you can you can play with it. And you can, you can make your if clause like if- and it's true, if, and you know, it's not true, if, and we're not really sure if it's true or not, you can, you can play with the Greek words and bake that in there. This is a first class. This is if, and it's true. You can translate it as a sense, in other words. Since I speak truth, why do you not believe me? This is a rhetorical question that Jesus will answer in a moment. Mark Twain said, Faith is believing what you know ain't so. Faith is believing what you know ain't so. That's a lie. That is utterly false. In the Bible, faith is never contrasted with reason. Faith is contrasted with sight. We are told not to believe what is untrue. We're told to believe what we can't see, but we have been promised by the living God and so God, because He is so gracious, because He is so loving, always gives physical evidence of the invisible realm. Jesus is here promising that He is Messiah God. He's claiming He's Messiah God. That is a claim from the invisible, immaterial, spiritual realm. So what does He do? He gives evidence from the visible, material physical realm that people can see this is what he is doing here in the text he validates his claim from the immaterial world he validates it through the material visible world first he did that with his miracles and now he does it with his sinlessness the religious leaders said you're a liar." They told the people, you're a liar. And in this conversation, essentially, that's what they're saying. You're a liar. You're a deceiver. And so in verse 46, Jesus says, If it were true that I was a liar, then you'd find sin somewhere in my life. Sin would show itself up, not just in my alleged lies, but somewhere else in my life. They claim he's a liar and a deceiver. And Jesus says, I'm sinless, and I invite you to examine me, to determine that. I challenge you to find sin anywhere in my life. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I assume Jesus paused and waited for a response. Which one of you convicts me of sin, he says. Crickets. Or to quote a moving line maybe I shouldn't quote, Well, we're waiting. (laughs) Which one of you convicts me of sin? No one. No one convicted him of sin. He challenged them. You see, this is not a claim like Senator Gary Hart from the late 1980s. You remember that senator who was running for president? He was a a contender for president for the presidential election in 1988 and he's campaigning in 87 and there were rumors that he was an adulterer and so he wanted to get the press off his trail and he said, follow me around and you will be very bored. And three days later, a member of the press said, we did and we weren't. (laughs) We did follow him around and we were not bored because they found out that he was engaged in multiple adulterous affairs. And so five days after he made that challenge, he had to withdraw from his campaign and withdrew from the race in disgrace, having lost all credibility. Jesus makes the claim, and there is a response of silence. And that response still exists today in the year 2023. There is no evidence of any sinlessness from Jesus He's holy and he's righteous because he's God and he's holy and he's righteous as a man, unlike all of us, sinless as a man. This is what makes him qualified to pay for our sins. For Jesus, there was no evidence of even the slightest sin. His sinlessness in the visible physical realm validated his claim in the immaterial spiritual realm that he was and is Messiah God. So Jesus asked them in verse 46, why do you refuse to believe me since I'm sinless and you got no evidence that would contradict that? He then answers the rhetorical question as to why in verse 47. He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them because you are not of God. Jesus has been speaking the words that the Father gave him, but they neither hear them nor obey them. He's been saying, Trust me, believe that I am the only way to everlasting life. They reject his words because they are men not of God, but of the evil one. Verse 48 The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? They hate Jesus. And they want to discredit him and discredit his words. But his credibility is flawless. His credibility is unassailable. So they conclude, we have but one argument left. It's the last argument. We studied the argument in chapter 7. You know what argument I'm talking about? It's the yo mama argument. When you got nothing left and somebody else has all these great points, your response is... Yo mama! Because you got nothing else to say. So they, they say, you're a Samaritan. Uh, so there. That's an insult. One Jew calling another Jew a Samaritan is a huge insult because there's all this conflict between the Jews and the Samaritans. When you have nothing left... And and, and someone's made a great point, and and you're all emotional, and and you're defensive. You hurl insults at the other side. It shows the weakness of your position. And that's what they're doing. They say, you're a Samaritan, which is a big insult. One Jew calling another Jew a Samaritan. And they say, you're demon-possessed. The religious leaders don't recognize the irony, the great irony of their words, They accused Jesus of being a Samaritan, meaning not being a true descendant of Abraham, a half-breed. But in fact, they're the ones who were not true descendants of Abraham because the true descendants of Abraham are his spiritual descendants, regardless of what racial heritage they have. The irony was that the Samaritans of John chapter 4, the actual Samaritans who were from the village of Sychar, we studied that, they are saved. They believe in him. They believe in Jesus, where these Jewish religious leaders that are so proud of their racial heritage were descendants of Abraham. They mean racially. They mean physically, because they think by sight and not by faith. The Samaritans of Sychar, the city of Sychar, in John chapter 4, they're saved. But these Jewish religious leaders who are physically descendant of Abra- descendants of Abraham, are not saved. These physical descendants of Abraham, in fact, hate the seed of Abraham, which is one of the titles for Jesus, and they want to kill him. They are not sons of Abraham, in any sense. Their accusation that Jesus is an agent of the devil, meaning demon possessed, is also ironic. Because they are the ones following the devil's pattern of death, destruction, and deception. Satan was their spiritual father, not Abraham. And their actions will bear this out before the morning is over. Jesus ignores their insults and again shows them great love. He ignores their insults and he gives them the gospel, the good news, the way of salvation, the way to heaven One more time. Verse 49, Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me, but I do not seek my glory. See, the person who seeks his own glory follows the pattern of demons. We saw the pattern of demons, the pattern of the ruler of demons. Last time in Isaiah 14, in eternity past, Lucifer uttered his five prideful I wills. Isaiah 14, verses 13 and 14. I will ascend to heaven, Lucifer said. I will raise my throne above the stars of God, Lucifer said. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. And then the the, the peak of arrogance, the climax of arrogance, I will make myself like the most high. And God said, I don't think so. And God judged the devil and the fallen angels for eternity in the lake of fire. Jesus says the fire, it's the eternal fire. That's the phrase that Jesus describes that has already been prepared for the devil and his fallen angels and everyone who follows them by refusing to trust in Christ. See, here's the amazing thing. Not even Jesus seeks his own glory, though he is perfectly entitled to it because he is God the Son. Jesus seeks the Father's glory in humility. He submits to his equal, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're each fully God, co-equal, but in humility, God the Son submits to God the Father and seeks the Father's glory, where the religious leaders seek their own glory, following the pattern of the ruler of demons, the pattern of devil, of the devil. As a result, they dishonor Jesus and thereby dishonor the Father. Remember Jesus' words from John 5, 23. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. The only way to honor the Father is by honoring the Son by faith. Keep reading in verse 50. There is one, Jesus says, there is one, notice the one is capitalized. There is one who seeks and judges. Jesus is referring to the Father. The Father seeks Jesus' glory, and he judges those who dishonor Jesus. Jesus honored the Father by offering himself as the sinless substitute to pay for the sins of the world. Israel rejected Jesus following the lead of their religious leaders. But the Father will vindicate him by judging those who reject him. Judgment is coming I know the world kind of, eh, dismisses that. Let's talk about something exciting. Let's talk about something flashy. Let's talk about something pleasurable. You no, know, the Bible says let's talk about judgment. How's that for a gospel message? I'm here to talk about judgment. Because the Bible talks about judgment. Because God loves you. And so God warns that judgment is coming. God is not somebody that tolerates being ignored. Not that he is arrogant or prideful, it's that he's God and you are not. It is that simple. And so judgment is inescapable. That's why Jesus talks about judgment here. (coughs) Judgment is real. Now, for the child of God, for the one who has trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of her sins and the receiving of eternal life, or forgiveness of his sins and receiving of eternal life, that one is the child of God. And judgment for that one is blessing. Because judgment involves both blessing and punishment, or wrath. Wrath for the enemies of God and blessing for the children of God of God. Keep reading in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. There's the gospel one more time. To these people who hate Jesus. How do you keep Jesus' word? You believe in his word. You trust that he is Messiah, God. He's not just a guy. He's not just a good teacher. He is fully God, fully man. He is your Savior. And you must Accept him as such in order to be saved from the wrath that you so richly deserve and that I deserve. That, that, that's just who we are. I'm not trying to offend you. I'm just telling you what God says. We're all subject to his wrath before we come to Christ. If you will trust in Christ, Jesus is talking to the, to the, to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and to everybody thereafter who hasn't trusted in Christ by extension. If you trust in him, you will never see death. You will never, the the, the word here for see in the Greek has the idea of see or experience. You will never see or experience death. The never here in in, in our verse, the word never is the strongest possible negative in the Greek. It's ume, not not. Now in English, you know, we have double negatives and you know, we're like, your English teacher says, no, 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 no. No double negatives. Well, Greek loves double negatives. Many languages love double negatives. In the languages that allow double negatives, which English is not, it's a way to emphasize the notness. It emphasizes the never, never, never. And that's what we're seeing here through the strongest possible negation. You will never experience or see death if you will trust in him. Physical death is unavoidable. The mortality rate among human beings is 100%. No exceptions, right? No one gets out of here alive. Now, I I, I recognize that there's the rapture generation. That may be us, that may not be us. Paul thought it was him. Paul thought it was their generation. It may be us, it may not be us. You need to be prepared to go the way of all flesh. You need to be prepared to punch your time card. Physical death is unavoidable, but spiritual death is totally avoidable. Physical death, unavoidable. Spiritual death, avoidable. This is what Jesus is talking about, spiritual death. At the moment of faith in Christ, the believer is put in union with God. He or she receives eternal spiritual life that physical death has no power over. Physical death is very powerful and painful to the recipient and to all the loved ones. You see that in a funeral. Physical death is very powerful, very painful, but it has zero power over spiritual life. Because spiritual life is forever life. That's why Jesus calls it eternal life. This is what Jesus is referring to here, is the person will not die, not, never, never die spiritually. The life that Jesus offers is eternal life because it is life from the one who is eternal. Sadly, as before, these religious leaders fail to comprehend Jesus' words. Their unbelief has blinded and deafened them, so they think of the physical realm. They live by sight and not by faith. They think of the physical realm in response to Jesus' words, not the spiritual realm. Look at verse 52. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died. And the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? Here's what they're saying. Jesus, you claim that if someone trusts in you, that they will never die. They think physically. That they will never die physically. The men of God of the past, like Abraham, like the prophets, they've all died physically. You're making yourself and your word out to be greater than those men of the past, those men of faith, those great men of faith of the past, and greater even than their words. Who do you think you are? You're not greater than them. You're certainly not greater than Abraham. This is what they're saying in this passage you see the religious leaders miss the point entirely jesus is not elevating himself he's elevating the words of the father that the father gave jesus to speak jesus is humble the words of the father are words of eternal life that's what jesus is elevating above abraham above the pro- above everything The words of eternal life. Keep reading in verse 54. Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say, He is our God. And you have not come to know Him, but I know Him. And if I say I do not know Him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know Him and keep His word. How about this for a really nice gospel presentation? I will be a liar like you, Jesus says. This is... This is confrontational. I'm not saying Jesus is rude or uncivil. Please don't think that. Jesus was meek and gentle, but Jesus was direct. And the word of God is divisive. Jesus is saying, you claim to know God, that's a lie. You claim that I don't know God, that's a lie. Unlike you, I obey the Father's word, and he will glorify me for it. Jesus' ultimate act of obedience to the Father will be for him to give his life as a ransom for many, to give his life for the sins of the world so that those who believe in his word will never be separated from the author of life, will never be separated from God, which is to say they will never die spiritually. They will never experience spiritual death. Remember, death in the Bible is separation. Physical death is separation of the soul, From the body. Spiritual death is separation from God. Well, if you are separated from the author of life forever, for eternity, then that means you're with the author of death and deception and destruction and sin for eternity. Only two options. Either intimacy with God or hostility with God. In the spiritual war, there are no Switzerland's. Jesus' ultimate act of obedience will be to submit to the Father to give his life for all of us. Then Jesus circles back to Abraham, who they're focusing on. Look at verse 56. Jesus says, Your father, Abraham. Now, when Jesus says it here, your father, Abraham, he means your physical descendant. He's now going to talk about physical descent. Your, your physical ancestor. You're a physical descendant of Abraham, your father Abraham, your physical ancestor, not spiritual ancestor, rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham rejoiced to see Jesus' day, the coming of Christ, and he saw it and was glad. Abraham lived 2,000 years before Jesus. He lived around 2,000 B.C. Christ says two things about Abraham. He rejoiced to see the coming of Christ, And he saw the coming of Christ and was glad. As you can imagine, there's a whole lot of commentary about this statement that Jesus is making here. I think it's fairly straightforward. Abraham lived by faith and not by sight. So he saw, he saw the things of God. By faith, he saw the promises of God fulfilled in his mind's eye, in his heart. He anticipated the promises of God being fulfilled. Abraham looked forward to the fulfillment of God's promises to him, for example, in Genesis twelve three, In you, Abraham, all the families of the earth will be blessed. How are they going to be blessed? They're going to be blessed with the coming of Christ. Abraham saw that promise in his mind's eye. He believed it. He expected it. He looked forward to it. He trusted in it the writer of Hebrews spoke of Abraham's faith in the context of the celestial city. In the hall of faith, Hebrews 11, we read this about Abel, Enoch, Noah, and Abraham. Hebrews 11, verse 13, all these died in faith, those men, without receiving the promises, but having seen them and having welcomed them from a distance and having confessed that they were strangers and exiles on the earth, For those who say such things make it clear that they are seeking a country of their own. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. Now we're talking. Now we're talking. We're talking about the heavenly city, the celestial city, the new Yerushalayim, the new Jerusalem, in the same way that Abraham saw the first coming of Christ in the sense that he trusted the promises of God. He believed, he expected the promises to be fulfilled. In that same way, he saw the eternal city. Specific to Abraham, the writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews eleven nine. By faith, he, Abraham, lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise, for he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. This is fascinating to me. Abraham saw these things, Because he believed in God's promises. The question for us is, do we look forward to the celestial city the way Abraham did? Do we expect it? Do we see it the way Abraham did? Revelation 21 and 22 give us more revelation about the new Jerusalem, which is the eternal destiny. That's where spiritual life will be enjoyed. Jesus is talking about spiritual life. You're never going to spiritually die, which is to say you'll have spiritual life. You'll have eternal life. That's where it's going to be enjoyed. Eternal life, as we've seen, is not about quantity of life. It's about quality of life. Everybody's going to live forever. The question is, are you going to live in the eternal city with God forever, or are you going to live in the lake of fire with the author of death forever? And so Revelation 21 and 22 give us more information, more revelation about the city than Abraham had, unless God gave special revelation to Abraham, which certainly is possible. We have the city recorded for us in the text in Revelation 21 and 22. We'll study that at some point. But Revelation 21 and 22 have this incredible description of the celestial city. Let me describe it for you. It's a city that is described as a golden city with with angels at its gates. It's a city with foundations of jewels. It's a city with streets made with gold. Do you see it? It's a city that has in it the tree of life that gives life to all who are in it. It has a, a throne, and from the throne, the river flows, a river of water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne, the text says. Do you see it? The city has as its light, not the sun, but the light that is provided in the city is the one who sits on the throne, God And the Lamb, in the celestial city, God does something that is fantastic. What he does is he fellowships and communes with those who are in the city. He wipes away their tears, Revelation 21 says. Do you see it? The text says there is no death, there is no mourning, there is no crying, there is no pain. The first things are gone. Do you hear the voice of him who sits on the throne? He says, behold, I am making all things new. It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Do you see it? This is the promise of God. These are the promises of God. This is what Abraham saw. He saw it in his mind's eye. He saw it by faith. He saw it because he believed it. He saw it because he trusted it. This is what we are seeing here in the text. Abraham loved God and believed his word. And so when Jesus says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it, it's this statement of Abraham's Trust in God. It's a statement of Abraham's faith in God. Abraham loved God and believed his word. The question is for us, do we? It's the question that is asked of every generation. In John 8, verse 57, the religious leaders scoff at Jesus' words. We read there, The Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Abraham? See, their question betrays their unbelief. Their question reveals their disbelief in Jesus. Jesus, how can you see a man who lived 2,000 years ago, and how can that man see you? He's been dead for 2,000 years. That's what they're saying in their question. His words make no sense. Jesus' words make no sense to them because they think that he is merely a man and not God incarnate. Jesus, in his great love, in his great mercy, makes it crystal clear to them. He's talking to people who hate him and want to kill him. So instead of, I'm out of here, I, I, I'm going to run, he's going to take his words and he's going to make it abundantly clear what he is saying. So there is no confusion about who he is and what he came to do. Look at verse 58. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. What he's doing here is the same thing he's done many, 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 many times already. He is claiming equality with God, and he does not say, before Abraham was born, I was. He says, before Abraham was born, I am. Ego emi in the Greek. This is an I am claim. He is claiming to bear the ancient name of God from Exodus 3 that God gave to Moses when Moses stood before the bush that was burning and it doesn't burn up. And so he said, I have to see this. And God speaks to him through the bush. And Moses says, what's your name? And God says, I am. Moses says, you want me to go to the Israelites and tell them to pack their bags and to tell Pharaoh we're leaving? What if they ask me your name? What name do I give them? And God says, I am that I am. This is the name that Jesus is claiming to bear. A human that bears the I am name. And the religious leaders understand his claim. They understand exactly what Jesus is saying. Please never believe when someone says, Jesus never claimed to be God. That person is a liar. And you see it right here in The text, look at verse 59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They didn't believe Jesus' claim of deity. So they concluded, you are a blasphemer. And the penalty for blasphemy in Leviticus 24, verse 16, is being stoned to death. In their murderous rage, they ignore the, the, the requirements for a trial, for a fair trial in the Mosaic Law. They ignore all of that. And in their murderous hate for God. The reason people hate Jesus is because they hate God. The reason people hate Jesus is because they hate God. They hate God, so they hate Jesus who stands before them. And in their murderous rage, we don't need no stinking law. Just give me the rocks. We've got to kill this. We've got to shut him up now. Because he claims to be God, the I am, in the flesh. The religious leaders pick up stones to murder Jesus. But it wasn't yet his hour. So he escaped freely. I don't know exactly how he did that. I don't know if he just made himself invisible and through the crowd or if he just walks through. Excuse me. They can't touch him because his hour has not yet come. It will come soon. Jesus is a man of incredible courage. Notice I said is. Is a man of incredible courage. He is fully man, fully God. He taught the truth for their benefit, for the benefit of the people who hated him, and for our benefit as well. He taught the truth in the face of murderers because he loved them, and he loves you. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. Maybe you're here today and you have an image of Jesus that is an image of your own imagination, that is an image of the Jesus of Hollywood, that is an image of the Jesus of the culture. You are mistaken if that is your Jesus. You are unsaved, you are unredeemed if that is your Jesus. The Jesus of the Bible is fully God, fully man. The Jesus of the Bible is a Jesus who will judge. Is He a Jesus of love and mercy and compassion? Yes, He is. And in fact, God's most... Often, behavior is love and mercy and compassion and blessing. It is judgment that is the rarity of God. You see that described in the book of Isaiah. Judgment and wrath are the rarity of God. But make no mistake, He does execute that with the same intensity with which He loves. And the phrase, the wrath of God, is used over 600 times in the Bible. And God has given to Jesus all judgments Jesus says at the end of Matthew 28, all judgment has been delegated to Him. And so He came as the Lamb, meek and mild and gentle in His first coming. But when He returns, He will not return as the Lamb. He will return as the Lion to execute the judgment of God. All you have to do is read the book of Revelation, and you see that in great, great graphic detail. You are the enemy of God if you have not trusted in Christ. Christ being fully God, fully man. Christ being the one who paid for your sins on the cross. Christ being the one who was raised on the third day as the evidence that what he did on the cross is in fact valid and effective to save us from tasting spiritual death ever. He is the one who died for our sins according to the scriptures, was buried and raised on the third day according to the scriptures, to quote the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. You must trust in him for the forgiveness of your sins and the receiving of eternal life. If you refuse to do that, you will spend eternity in the lake of fire under his great judgment. Don't do that. That is totally unavoidable. Excuse me, totally avoidable. Physical death is unavoidable, but spiritual death is totally avoidable. I'm available afterwards if you'd like to visit. Let's close in prayer. Father, we praise you because you're an awesome God. We praise you because you're a God to be feared and loved. We praise you because of your great power. We praise you because of your great mercy and compassion and your grace for us. We praise you that you have saved us from ourselves, saved us from our sin if we trust in Christ. We thank you for you having recorded these events for us 2,000 years ago, that we may be edified by them. And we ask that you transform us, challenge us to submit to you. We also pray for our country as we descend into wickedness, that you would give us a revival, that you would draw us back to you, that you would correct us, that we may honor your name. We pray these things in the name of